0: On behalf of Big Tent USA, welcome to today's Spotlight Speaker Series with Professor Larry Diamond and moderator Ann Wedner. Big Tent USA is building a pro democracy coalition to protect the guardrails of our democracy, ensure government accountability, and increase civic participation. I am so pleased to introduce our moderator tonight, Ann Wedner, for this evening's call. Ann has been a leader in grassroots political movements and continues to partner with organizations working toward a more just, An inclusive society. She recently left her role as a donor engagement director for Mia Vecino in Florida. Since 2011, Anne has also served as commissioner on the United States Advisory Commission on Public Diplomacy. She is a board member at the USC Center for Public Diplomacy in Los Angeles and a cabinet member at the Roosevelt Foundation at Harvard's Adams House. Until recently, Anne was also a board member of Freedom House and the University of Chicago Project on Security and Threats in her earlier career and represented the United States as a foreign service officer in France and Venezuela. Welcome, Anne. We are so honored to have you and Professor Diamond under the tent.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Susan, and uh, thank you to the Big Tent for sponsoring this really important uh, series of discussions and our discussion today. I uh, am delighted today that we are joined by Professor Larry Diamond, who I would say is the world's or at least the American foremost expert on democracy formation and dissolution. And uh, I just want to give a little bit about Larry's background because it's so impressive, but I don't want to take up too much time. So he is currently the senior fellow at the Hoover Institution and the Mossbacher Senior Fellow in Global Democracy at the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies at Stanford. He also chairs the Hoover Institution Project on Taiwan in the Indo-Pacific region, and is a principal investigator of the Global Digital Policy Incubator, part of Stanford's Cyber Policy Center. For more than six years, he directed FSI Center on Democracy Development and the Rule of Law, where he now leads its program on Arab reform and democracy. During 2017 and 18, he co-chaired a working group formed of researchers from Hoover and from the Asia Asia Society Center on US-China Relations, culminating in the report China's Influence and American interests: Promoting promoting Constructing Vigilance, uh, which was published in 2019. He is the founding co-editor of the Journal of Democracy and also serves as a senior consultant at the International Forum for Democratic Studies of the National Endowment for Democracy. So Professor Diamond's research has focused on democratic trends and conditions around the world and on policies and reforms to defend and advance democracy. His latest work, uh, his latest book, Ill Wind: Saving Democracy from Russian Rage, Chinese Ambition and American Complacency analyzes the challenges confronting liberal democracy in the United States and around the world at this potential hinge in history and offers an agenda for strengthening and defending democracy at home and abroad. So I could say even more, but I think you guys get the point. Professor Diamond has been there both enjoying the birth of democracy uh, and now its decline. And I'm just gonna turn it over to him to set the stage for us uh, with a little bit of history and theory and all that. And then we'll get into some juicier questions about today. So Professor Diamond.
2: Okay, uh, thank you, Anne. Uh, I'm sorry that we no longer have you uh, as a member of the Distinguished Careers Institute at Stanford. It's not because we expelled you or wanted you to leave, but it's because you, to the extent we even use the term for that great program, graduated and, and now begin the rest of your distinguished career. So, uh, but it's been wonderful having you as an interlocutor, uh, auditor of my course, and friend over the last year. And um, I am very grateful that your tent is big enough to include me. I uh, could lecture to you for two hours, uh, or 50 minutes, or um, just a few minutes. Uh, I'm going to choose the (laughs) 15-minute time frame we agreed on. I don't want to go longer, uh, not because I don't have more to say, but because I have gleaned just slightly what some of the questions might be. And they're so interesting and provocative i want to get to them as soon as possible but um i would like to set a little bit of uh analytic context so let's start with this um i'm really going to turbocharge a lecture that normally takes about 45 or 50 minutes and compress radically um First point to be made is that a lot of the ideas I'm going to share with you uh, can be found. This is shameless self-promotion. I apologize. In this book I published uh, about three years ago called Ill Winds," a lot of what I have to say is in the subtitle, Saving Democracy from Russian Rage, Chinese Ambition and American Complacency. Some of what I have to say, I'm uh, sorry to recapitulate so much of what you spent a whole quarter listening to, and <clears throat> is in understanding what liberal democracy is, that um, if you want a good democracy and you want the kind of democracy that our founding constitutional framers with all their faults and and short-sightedness, but with important insights into the liberal dimension of liberal democracy understood, it can't just be about majority rule, uh, which is the kind of populist uh, reduction of liberal democracy. And uh, in the case of the U.S., it's not even about majority rule. It's got to involve as well the rights of minorities uh, and freedom for all, in every respect, Uh, and uh, freedom to organize, to speak, to criticize, to oppose, uh, to discover, to investigate, to publish, and so on. And it's got to involve the pursuit of um, good government in the Republican sense, of course, not a partisan sense, but of the Platonic ideal, which is also, frankly, the Madisonian ideal of good government and um, what Madison and his fellow constitutional framers understood is that, uh, and Locke and Montesquieu before them, that unconstrained by constitutions and their checks and balances, rulers are bound to go bad, Even, even great rulers, even ones who start with good intentions And so you need a rule of law, you need constitutional constraints, and you need to constantly refurbish those constitutional constraints or repair the ways they're being vitiated to restore um, this uh, tripartite balance, the three-legged stool that makes up liberal democracy. And when you think about the Republican or good government, limited government government checks and balances, anti-tyranny dimension. Um, Remember Madison's famous phrase in the Federalist Papers, if men, but I will say people, because women are capable of doing bad things too, if men were angels, we would have no need of government at all. So what we've got is, I won't dwell on this slide, but you can see here that for the last 14 years, this blue line on top, we've been in a steady kind of downward trend in terms of the proportion of states in the world, particularly looking at the ones that are larger, over 1 million population, that meet a reasonable test of democracy. That kind of peaked after a long period of expansion, the rapid rise during the post-Cold War world, the continued steady expansion through 2005. And then we get the Iraq war and its blowback, then the financial crisis, social media, all the bad things that have been happening to democracy. And you can I could show you another dozen slides that elaborate this point that we've been in a 15 or 16-year global democratic recession but you know not to use up too much time I I think you will agree and understand intuitively that that's been so and has been giving us a lot of populist leaders like the late Hugo Chavez in Venezuela Yaroslav Kaczynski who rules behind the scenes in Poland Viktor Orban in uh, Hungary Recep Tayyip Erdogan who unfortunately just got re-elected uh, in Turkey, a whole slew of other autocrats in Latin America, Maduro, Nicolás Maduro Chávez's successor in Venezuela, the extremely corrupt uh, Daniel Ortega in Nicaragua. I could go on and on. It's a rogues list of authoritarian populace. How do they come to power? Well, they always start through elections, uh, and they promise the people wonderful things by saying you've been betrayed by a corrupt ruling elite who don't care about you and look down on you and you're the real deserving people. Uh, and we have to reclaim the country in the name of the good, true and deserving people. Their reclaiming of the country um, has all these other elements. It's anti-institutionalist. They're ready to sweep all the old corrupt institutions aside in the name of a pitchfork pitchfork revolution on behalf of the good, true, deserving people who've been betrayed by all those corrupt, you know, um, university-educated, uh, liberal, intellectual, uh, and political elites and the deep state that has uh, had the temerity to try and restrain Elected officials who want to just do what the people want or do what they claim the people want. These rulers, these would be autocrats who then often become authoritarian rulers, are anti elitist, anti institutionalist, anti pluralist because they think there's only one answer. And then other political parties, other viewpoints, other newspapers, uh, other intellectual perspectives are not really legitimate uh, and shouldn't be uh, allowed to um, have the same rights or maybe exist at all. These uh, populist political projects have hegemonic pretensions as summarized uh, in the vow of one noteworthy um manifestation of this who said in his presidential um uh acceptance speech to the nominating convention of the party whose nomination he got to become president of his country the country is broken and only i can fix it i think you know who i'm talking about so they have everywhere all these people chavez uh Uh, Yaros, you know, uh, Yaroslav Kaczynski, uh, Erdogan, Orban, um, uh, Sheikh Hasina in Bangladesh, Narendra Modi in India, Donald Trump in the United States, a plebiscitary view of democracy, that democracy is a system in which the people vote to elect a leader. It's a plebiscite. And they empower the leader to do whatever is necessary to um, override the institutions that are cheating the people, punish the corrupt, uh, cynical, anti-people elite, dismantle the deep state, and along the way, put all those um, dirty, deviant minorities in their place uh, so that the good deserving people can be elevated and have their values and dignity restored without being demeaned by uh, uh, uncomfortable manifestations of difference, whether it's a difference in religion, a difference in ethnicity, a difference in skin color, a difference in political philosophy, a difference in sexual orientation. I have not seen any of these illiberal populist projects anywhere in the world that doesn't feel the need to pick or create a minority to demonize on their way to stoking fear and concentrating power. And they always end up with laying on a good dose of nationalist, xenophobic uh, fear and prejudice against the international community. That's the populist element. Then you get to, um, uh, this is Ann's favorite part, the 12-step program uh, that autocrats use in this day and age to concentrate power and gradually uh, erode, hollow out, and eventually eviscerate democracy. They start by... Suggesting by questioning the legitimacy of the political opposition that maybe they're not really loyal to their company, uh, the country. They're not like you and me, the good, deserving people. They're part of the corrupt elite. And maybe they're not really loyal to the country. And, you know, uh, they've been violating the country's rules and uh, they should be prosecuted because they were hiding information or something. And they turn the country against their opponents. And they create a a duality between the legitimate manifestations of popular opinion, political sentiment, which are only the ones that support them and the opposition. This happens everywhere, Hungary, Turkey, India, and so on. Then they get to power and they go to work on all of those pillars of restraint in what we, I called Republican government, the checks and balances. Uh, and uh, they start with the courts and try and gain control of the courts, politicize the courts, and put on the bench from top to bottom judges who will rule in their favor and therefore not constrain what they're doing. They go to work on the media and they threaten the media and they say, you want to stay in business? Um, you want to stay out of jail? You, you better stop criticizing me and my party. And in many of these places, um, they do put opposition media literally out of business. They sue them into bankruptcy. The tax man comes and finds tax charges and they have to shut down. Uh, or they have to sell out to businessmen who will turn the television station or the newspaper into a mouthpiece for the ruler and the ruling party. They do the same by gaining control of public broadcasting and just making that a propaganda arm of the ruling party. They start constraining where they can internet freedom, and they eventually launch a war a war that has just begun in the United States, not this week, but it finally reached the New York Times this week, uh, in the report on Monday about the efforts of Jim Jordan's House Committee, Judiciary Committee, I think, to intimidate and terrorize uh, universities and NGOs who are raising questions about disinformation uh, and suggesting that um, you know not all sources of um, disinformation are you know con- kind of fall evenly on the political spectrum. Surprise, surprise! There are certain actors that are much more uh, egregiously ega- engaging in it than others. But for Jim Jordan, who doesn't have executive power, but you can go a certain ways with this agenda. From a Joe McCarthy-style misuse of parliamentary power, uh, you know, you can make headway on this agenda. Uh, They intimidate the business community into submission uh, by threatening it. This has gone very far in Turkey and Hungary, in India and so on, uh, with confiscation, with tax penalties, Uh, with jail uh, if they support the wrong political party. And uh, in the process, uh, the contracts flow to a loyal class of crony capitalists who get very rich off of their relationship to power. And if those crony capitalists play their cards right, uh, they can even get rich on the international ties that have been forged through the misuse of um, authority during their time in government. Then they go to war on the deep state, um, which is those dimensions of the career civil service and uh, law enforcement and intelligence apparatus that won't bend over and lick the boots Uh, of the incipient autocratic populist, but instead insist on a neutral and independent um, implementation of their official duties. And those people gradually get terrorized, purged, demoralized, and incentivized to quit so they can fill the ranks with uh, loyal time servers of these manifestations of what needs to be a neutral, independent, you know, career law enforcement, justice department, civil service, IRS, uh, if you don't want your country to slide into authoritarianism. The final steps are to gain control of electoral administration and to politicize it um, so that you don't have um, a level playing field. Uh, And then, well, step 12 is to repeat steps 1 to 11 over and over in a tightening circle. It's like the hands on the neck of um, the democratic body politic. Um, I don't want to speak for too much longer. I'll just say that there are global causes of this. There are technological causes of this that include... uh, 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 social media which i think is a big part of the problem this is going on in lots of parts of the world and i think it represents um a, a global shift uh in what the germans call the zeitgeist the spirit of the times some countries particularly some countries in europe have been able so far to particularly in western europe resist it and kind of Turn things back in a better direction or at least mobilize majority support against it. But then, you know, if they govern in a way that can't bring the people along, uh, they may be only temporarily um, holding their fingers in the dike. And I'll just say uh, to accentuate the discomfort you're hopefully already feeling that I think there's a very, very good chance that Marine Le Pen is going to be the next president of France. And we've got a a situation here where China's power is rising, Russia's power is rising uh, as a result of changes in geopolitics, growing coordination. Uh, The Ukraine conflict has an uh, uncertain outcome. They're figuring ways to use the technological dimensions. So how do we turn this back? We have to counter authoritarian aggression, including in Ukraine. We have a lot of work to do to revive our own democracies and to defend our democratic norms and to call out defections from democratic principle, like including the one I've already referred to, and to defend the freedom and fairness and neutrality of our institutions and our electoral uh, process. I'm going to conclude with this. when the danger is not just illiberal but authoritarian populism you have to defeat authoritarian populism at the polls and if you don't do so and they take power you know you, you want to know what the future looks like i refer you back to the autocrats 12 step program that's what you're looking at uh and so i would suggest that we democrats around the world who may be even in advanced industrial democracies like the United States, staring at the prospect of the onset or recurrence of this kind of danger, need to learn the lessons of how uh, illiberal and potentially authoritarian populism uh, has been defeated elsewhere in the world. And it has been in Turkey and the Czech Republic and Slovakia and elsewhere. Well, Turkey at the municipal level, and Greece, uh, Czech Republic very notably, Slovakia, though, will be attested again, and so on. And these are my lessons on these two final slides. Uh, Transcend, do not reinforce the populist instinct to polarize. You cannot polarize, out-polarize the polarizer in chief. I think you know who I'm speaking about. Therefore, this was a word I used before I ever imagined I would be speaking to this group, create a big tent. You need a very broad coalition that speaks to and welcomes in um, all kinds of individuals with different political, ideological perspectives, including people who once might have supported Uh, the illiberal populace when they didn't realize how authoritarian he might be. You need to lead with bread and butter issues. I'm sorry to say this as a scholar of democracy. Most people, most of the time, do not vote on democracy as their number one issue. They vote out of fear. Um, They vote out of aspiration for a better life. They vote most of all on material concerns and bread and butter issues with identity concerns as a close runner up or even a, uh, you know, even a concern that overtakes material concerns. And you've got to figure out how to speak to those concerns. You've got to mobilize public sentiment against the corruption of the populist leader because they're all deeply corrupt. It's something they share. It's the soft underbelly of illiberal populism is their uh, selfishness, greed for money, greed for power, and indiscipline uh, uh, once they sweep away the institutions of oversight and constraint. It's helpful to identify reforms to improve democracy. I have a long list that I can share with you. Uh, Some of them are already probably in your minds. And we as Democrats, small d, need to uh, embrace and not shy away from patriotism. But our patriotism may look a little different than the illiberal populist patriotism of xenophobic nationalism. It's not a patriotism of kicking uh, foreigners and immigrants, down and out. It's not a patriotism of a shallow nationalism that demeans our allies and and international adversaries as well. It's a patriotism that takes pride in our country, and in the democratic legacy of our country, and in the indispensable uh, feature uh, that people around the world look up to of democracy and constitutionalism as part of what makes America great and what makes America admired. And we need finally, again, conclusion to build broad cross-cutting alliances that reach across traditional divisions and politics and civil society to confront the illiberal populist challenge.
1: Okay, bravo, Uh, that was amazing. Thank you, Larry. I wish that we had five days instead of uh, 15 minutes to go through this. But uh, just because it was your last point and I know it's on all of our minds, can we then apply some of those principles to the idea that No Labels is fielding a candidate named Joe Manchin to run in the next election? Does that support democracy or does that support autocracy in your opinion?
2: So um, no label seems quite serious about its um, $70 million, completely non-transparent and undisclosed as to where the money is coming from, although we know much of it is coming from Donald Trump uh, donors, so that should signal something right there, campaign to qualify for the ballot, a presidential ticket in all 50 states. We don't know if no labels continues with that campaign. Who the candidate will be for president or the candidate for vice president? It could be Joe Manchin. It could be someone else. We only know they're seriously considering doing this. Uh, they have decided in their moral and political judgment uh, that um, Joe Biden and Donald Trump are. Uh, it appears by their strategy, equally uh, contemptuous as political alternatives for the United States. And therefore, um, it is uh, necessary and morally and politically compelling to offer the American people uh, a third alternative. And uh, the alternative that they're promising is a ticket made up together of a Republican and Democrat, one running for president, one running for vice president, and one type of ticket that has been speculated is Joe Manchin for president and former Republican governor of Maryland, Larry Hogan for vice president. Now, my view as a scholar of democracy uh, is not very sympathetic to the two-party duopoly in the United States. I think that we need more competition. I think it'd be a very good thing for American democracy. I think it would be good to have more alternatives in presidential elections and other elections. But if you are going to have uh, an election in which there are more than two realistic alternatives, what we've learned um, for, in some cases, in the minds of people who've gone through it, bitter experience, is that if you don't have any mechanism to ensure that there's a majority winner of a three or more cornered contest, it can be very unstable. Um, and the third or additional entrance can be a spoiler, as Ralph Nader was uh, in uh, 2000, uh, as Ross Perot might have been in 1992, uh, and as no labels would, by all political assessments, obviously be in 2024. Um, I, my kind of most favored democratic reform, I think the single democratic reform that the United States most needs and would benefit from, thank you very much for the comment or question, is ranked choice voting. So I'll answer that right away. If we had a popular vote for president and we had ranked choice voting, I would say, great. You, you want to run as a third party? Wonderful. Um, nominate a bipartisan ticket. Nominate a green ticket. Nominate a libertarian ticket. Nominate a uh, pro-Martian exploration ticket, any kind of ticket you want. Let the uh, American people have multiple choices. They can rank their choices. If nobody gets a majority of the vote, there can be a series of instant runoffs until we get a majority winner. In that circumstance, you know there's no spoiler. You're not wasting your vote if you want to uh, give a first preference or give a try to uh, a third candidate. I think ranked choice voting is the most efficient way to do that, but another way is to do what France does and have a runoff election, okay? You don't like Macron, you don't like Le Pen, you vote for somebody else. Uh, And if they don't make it, the top two candidates go to a runoff election and then the people vote again. And that's why Marine Le Pen, you know, is one reason why she's not president right now, because... Uh, she can't win, or up until now has not been able to win a runoff election. Now, I don't like runoff elections as much as I like ranked choice voting for two reasons. One is we've got a problem with voter turnout. And, um, you know, Americans are just not in the habit of turning out in large numbers to vote. And so if you have a runoff election, two or four weeks after November 8th, or whenever it is, you run a serious risk that there's going to be a fall off in voter turnout. uh, And um, it's not going to be as good a reflection of the popular will. And also, if you have ranked choice voting, you take more account of all of the different preferences. You know, sometimes it could be with ranked choice voting, this is particularly been the case in municipal elections, not likely in national elections, that you might get someone coming from third place and rising up in the instant runoffs to win. So you never know, but you've got, I think it is very dangerous in a polarized presidential system and even more so in a polarized presidential system where one of the alternatives Um, represents uh, potentially, I'll let everyone here make the judgment themselves, uh, authoritarian form of government, Uh, it's very dangerous to run a third option uh, that um, guarantees there will not be a majority winner. Then, final point, if we know, and we know, from extensive public opinion uh, polling uh, that, you know, one candidate has a very hard base of support that's likely to remain very loyal. And some people think that candidate represents an authoritarian option. And the other candidate, people aren't particularly enthusiastic about, you know, the support is very soft. A lot of it might melt away to an alternative candidacy uh then it's highly likely, in the judgment of most American electoral experts uh including I won't present myself as an expert on American electoral politics, but I've studied it enough and seen enough polls to feel this analytic judgment with great passion, if no labels. Goes ahead with this initiative, and the election is between Donald Trump, Joe Biden, and the no labels ticket, whatever it is. I think the no labels ticket, with considerable and not surprising, undisclosed and effusive financial support from Donald Trump supporters, will be highly likely to elect Donald Trump president. Does that answer your question?
1: Yes, thank you. Um, so I think one thing that's confusing as we look out there, and, and your uh, twelve steps to becoming an autocrat, number one, seem kind of easy and hard to repel. Uh, but number two, you know, are there gradations among them? Is you know, would you consider, for example, also Ron DeSantis an autocratic threat? And if you had to pick between Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump, say you were taking a Republican Party ballot to vote in the primary. Who would be uh, a safer bet for America? Like, is there, or is that a conversation worth having?
2: Oh, you it know? is. Um, so I will give you my own judgment as a political scientist who has watched uh, very carefully the genesis and evolution of illiberal Uh, authoritarian populist leaders and projects around the world for 20 years now uh, starting with Hugo Chavez and if you will Putin but that's kind of in a different category because Russia was much more ambiguous as a democracy uh, but Venezuela was a real democracy and for a long period of time Donald Trump In the spectrum of American politics and on the spectrum of plausible potential candidates uh, for president of the United States in 2024 is in my judgment absolutely in a class by himself as a threat to American democracy. I think he is a uniquely dangerous figure. I say that for two broad reasons number one i think he is one of the most talented uh, uh, authoritarian demagogues of you know in american political history um i think uh there are very few who you really could even put in his uh category joe mccarthy was one McCarthy, you know, two or three things to be said about Joe McCarthy. It was right at the kind of very tentative dawn of the television era. For one, we didn't have as national a media system for two, you know, he wasn't much to look at for three, um and you know, he was only there for a while before his alcoholism started to consume him, and he started flaming out. Um, But Donald Trump is, uh, not only was, became a plausible candidate for president, he became president, something that never happened um, with McCarthy. And then the only other one you could really conjure up would be Huey, Huey Long. But He was assassinated before he could really challenge Roosevelt. And FDR, I think, would have beaten Huey Long in a national election. Um, That's the first thing. Uh, Trump is extremely talented as a wielder of um, the imagery and language of grievance and the channeler and mobilizer of fear and anxiety. Uh, Number two, so I'm gonna make three points, is um, I think Trump is unique among the potential presidential candidates of any party, left, right, or center, in his contempt for democracy and democratic institutions. And yes, I include Ron DeSantis and any other Republican in that comparison. Number three, and this is what um, really uh, takes the first two things and moves them to a level of really palpable fear on my part. Trump has been president. He knows where the levers of power are. He has had four years, well, three plus, to reflect On how and why his project for authoritarian power failed. And it only failed very narrowly, keep in mind. Were Trump to return to the presidency after four years of understanding to some extent how our institutions work and how checks and balances were mobilized, including by his own cabinet secretaries to constrain him and having had now three and a half or three years or so by by then it would be nearly four years to reflect on how the institutions were mobilized to constrain him he would enter the presidency on january 20th 2025 um, with an intense political project for dismantling American democracy. He would have a much keener sense of how to do so. He would embark upon a series of appointments who would share his mission to do so. We would look upon the attorney generalship of Bill Barr as a shining moment of democratic constraint compared to the Justice Department we would see under Donald Trump. the uh, we would look upon the National Security Council tenure of John Bolton as a glorious moment of prudence and restraint compared to possibly having Michael Finn. Flynn again as the national security advisor. And I could go on and on. Um, I, I don't like to peddle in this kind of stuff, but um. I would be very, very afraid of what the United States government would look like uh, in a Donald Trump presidency. This is not a partisan statement, okay? I have my partisan leanings. I'm not going to talk about them here. You can glean them or fail to glean them from other things I'll say. But I will say this. I don't fear Mike Pence becoming president. I don't fear Tim Scott becoming president. I don't fear Nikki Haley becoming president. I don't fear Chris Christie becoming president. I have my worries about Ron DeSantis. I think he's walked down this road in Florida, but I think Donald Trump is in a, is a, is in a class by himself.
1: I just lost my sleep for the next three weeks. Uh, Okay, so I was getting to a point of trying to normalize it, but I think we absolutely can't normalize it. I wanna go out to some of the commentary that we're seeing. I think um, oftentimes Democrats are self-aware about our own illiberalness, And I think Mary Himes pointed out this in a good question. She said, to what extent do autocrats elicit illiberal, illiberal efforts in the opposition? And so uh, she's thinking about how universities and colleges are banning conservative speakers. It happened definitely on campus this year at the law school at Stanford uh, So is this kind of illiberal uh, behavior even in the same category as the behaviors that you described in your speech or what is this uh, sort of illiberal echo from the the left uh, what is that what is that doing in our society?
2: What it's doing is presenting a, remarkably generous gift to right-wing illiberal populace Um, if you want to have a really good laugh i mean just just kind of get a glass of scotch uh, make sure it's pretty full or red wine or whatever your beverage of relaxation and entertainment is find the tape of um, Ron DeSantis's speech of a few days ago, and watch the whole thing. And uh, you know, I thank Rachel Maddow for introducing me to this. Just start making a check mark every time Ron DeSantis mentions the word "woke." W O K E. And if you can't find the tape, just try and find this next speech because it's going to come up again, right? And so, um, illiberal populists need and thrive on cultural enemies, um, and uh, it um, it empowers them, uh, and um, you know really uh, uh, makes them more appealing. Uh, they think more urgent. Uh, more kind of waging some kind of moral battle against good and evil. Remember what I said about illiberal populism. They need a cultural enemy, right? Um, If you're Narendra Modi, uh, you know, the Muslims will probably be good enough, even though they're are 200 million in number in India. Uh, If you're Erdogan, it can be the effete intellectual elite. If you're Orban, it can be all those Muslim immigrants that might come across the border and rape your daughter. And, you know, you get the point uh, about others. If you're you're Yoweri Museveni in Uganda and your country is too fragmented ethnically, to choose an ethnic minority, and everybody is African, so it's not really a racial division that works, uh, then you gotta find a cultural minority. So mm, pick on the gays, that'll do it. Yeah, the you know homosexuals are gonna ruin our society, pervert everybody, uh, destroy our Christian civilization or Muslim civilization. And then you, you know, direct your witch hunt against um, people um, who are part of the LGBTQ community. You gotta find something. And so if you, I'm not now um, criticizing the campaign for LGBTQ rights, Uh, I'm a strong defender of it. Um, But, you know, if you, don't have some sense of proportion and balance, okay? And if you're going to make the most important issue of the 2024 campaigning campaign, I'm going to be a little bit extreme here uh, and maybe exaggerated in saying this. If you're going to make as a prominent issue in the 2024 campaign, whether transgender women who have transitioned from men to women can use women's bathrooms, or whether transgender women who maybe even haven't fully physically transitioned yet to um, uh, to female um, physical uh, identities can be on women's sports teams. If that's going to be issue number one for you, I can tell you, wrap it around a big birthday cake for Ron DeSantis and Donald Trump, because this is just an enormous gift to them. So um, we go to the law school at Stanford University. We go to the pathetic and inexcusable events of mid-March here at Stanford University, where a militantly woke minority of stanford law students were so morally outraged by judge kyle duncan's federal judge appointed by donald trump's decisions and statements about abortion rights or not about lgbtq rights or not they were pretty frankly offensive statements i'd say uh in terms of a you know, uh, calculus of liberal values, but rather than, you know, uh, either boycott the talk and let him talk to a room only half full of only Federalist Society students, rather than do that or do what I would do if I had been a law student, which is suffer through his prepared remarks, and then engage him <laughs> in what in theory they're supposed to be trained to do at Stanford or Harvard law right which is courtroom debate reason debate challenge him uh on you know what's your legal basis for this what about this supreme court ruling what about the first amendment and so on and so forth instead of doing that they shouted him down they made him a hero among the extreme right judiciary and commentariat. They made themselves look like fools. It was wrong in terms of the values we should be upholding as a university in terms of freedom of speech, freedom of intellectual inquiry. It was a lost opportunity for them to actually make some headway in effectively challenging him. But in addition, it was in purely political terms so, you know, incomprehensibly stupid and counterproductive that you just got to shake your head. So that's my opinion on that.
1: Well, I'm glad that you were totally direct with us and I hope everybody appreciates uh, Professor Diamond's honesty and direction on on this. We have only got about 30 seconds left. Wanted to talk about Modi's visit and um, is the striving for democracy universal? Uh, What about corporate entities? Okay, uh, let's
2: take those 3. Go for so it. with um uh with Modi um look, the US India relationship is extremely important now if we're going to counter China's authoritarian intimidation in the Asia Pacific region and create a healthy balance of power in the Indo-Pacific and globally, um we uh uh we've got to um We've got to have a, a a growing practical and strategic partnership with India, And I worry about Modi. I think he's an illiberal populist who's taking Indian authoritarian direction, but nevertheless, you know, India is not Saudi Arabia, and it's not China. It's still got a lot of elements of pluralism. The way I would have handled this is to um welcome Modi meet him in the White House, express my concerns, I would not have given him the very rare honor of a state dinner. That's where I would have drawn the line. With respect to the universality of um, democratic values, um, they're under challenge now around the world. uh, And we've got to realize it's game on with respect to the normative competition. Russia and China are challenging the democratic narrative and uh, China spending $10 billion on a global propaganda campaign and machinery, the voice of China, uh, China to try and sully and, and discredit democracy, democratic pluralism, to make the argument uh, that authoritarianism is better, even though you can see how badly Xi Jinping mismanaged uh, the COVID crisis. Um, I spent a lot of time looking at public opinion polling, I'm just back from a meeting of the Global Barometer um, in Taiwan, Uh, I've seen a lot of these numbers, so I know there's some erosion in support for democracy in Latin America, in the Middle East and so on, but still, I also know I see the numbers, people do not want to live under authoritarian rule, people want to be free. And so they have growing doubts about democracy, but they still want the freedom, political accountability, and political choice that democracy offers. So we've still got a lot to work with, but as Ann knows, she's heard me elaborate on this, we need to ramp up again our campaign, our allied democratic campaign for democratic values. Now, you asked about corporations. And I don't know uh, uh, what the entire uh, question was, but I do want to recommend. I don't know if you can see, well, it's not coming off very clearly. Blender. My my former research assistant at the Stanford Law School, when the students there still had their, uh, you know, had a healthier perspective than some of them do now, um, has written a book entitled. Plunder, Private Equity's Plan to Pillage America by Brendan Ballou. I really highly recommend this book to you. uh, And the book by um, Raymond Baker called Invisible Trillions about the kleptocratic um, movement of uh, illicit money around the world, often again by our own corporations trying to evade taxes. I want to say emphatically and proudly, I'm a capitalist. I believe in private enterprise. And I think the genius of America has been the wedding uh, of liberal values, political competition, and liberal economics and economic competition. And that is an unmatched pairing in the history of humanity for prosperity. Um, shared prosperity freedom and so on and so forth the problem is and it's brilliantly described as well in a third book i'm going to recommend to you by the great financial times correspondent martin wolf called the crisis of democratic capitalism that pairing is under pressure now in part because of greed unchecked greed by people who are distorting uh our capitalist system to suck as much wealth out of it as possible, and then move it offshore uh, into safe havens where the IRS and uh, other elements uh, of our system of uh, scrutiny and law enforcement can't get at it. And we we just, you know, I'm not a socialist. I don't believe in socialism. I just believe, you know, People should pay taxes if they owe them. And um, they shouldn't be allowed to misuse the system to engage in gross deception through internal corporate transfer pricing to shift a lot of their real uh, profits onto some shell corporation in the Bahamas so they don't have to pay corporate taxes in the United States. And they shouldn't be allowed to buy some nursing home or chain of nursing homes somewhere, sell the real estate, you know, fire half of the staff, uh, have people die because of inadequate care and then have the nursing home uh, enterprise go bankrupt and say, oh gee, sorry. Uh, well, I guess we bought something that wasn't very viable when they've already sold the real estate Sold all the valuable assets and walked away with a small fortune. Something like that ought to be illegal. And so, um, you know, you don't have to get far into this to say that in politics, you need freedom and pluralism, but you also need regulation, oversight, and checks and balances. And in the market system, you need competition. Uh, and and freedom of capital to form and compete and challenge and innovate, but you also need regulation and oversight. And if you don't get regulation and oversight in politics or economics, what you're going to get is greed for power, greed for money, and uh, the kind of perversity that is now threatening the life of democratic capitalism
0: thank um everyone for coming and especially uh professor diamond and ann for facilitating this conversation it's it's amazing and actually we'd like to have you back on so you get that second chance to continue the conversation okay. again thank you everyone for coming we will send you a recap and uh we're all in for democracy all right thanks so okay.
2: much thank you
0: thank you